The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Greetings all. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks very much for being with me today. Got a little bit coming up on the program. We'll be joined momentarily by my friend Susan Demas. She's got a new column at michiganadvance.com taking a look at Republican efforts to find a way out of this gerrymandering ruling that the three-judge panel put forth the other day, which suggested that Michigan needs to redraw most of its Senate lines in the state Senate in advance of the 2020 election. This is going to create a lot of headaches for a lot of different people, but it is something that is likely going to happen. We'll see what the Supreme Court decides to do. We'll get Susan's take on all of that. Also coming up a little bit later on, just when you think politics can't get any scummier, along comes our old friend Jacob Wall. And this time he's tried to involve a Michigan college student in one of his cockamamie schemes. And I say cockamamie because I can't say the word that really I want to say. I can. It's on the internet, but I choose not to swear if I can help it. Anyway, that's all coming up. I'll tell you more about that on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Craig here. Thanks for joining me for the show today. Do appreciate it. Well, of course, a three-judge panel last week ruled that Michigan had been illegally gerrymandered by the Republican legislature uh, after the 2011 census, after the 2010, excuse me, after the 2010 census. Of course, the political lines were redrawn. They were passed by the Republican legislature and signed by then-Governor Rick Snyder into law. But the three-judge panel basically said that this was one of the worst cases of gerrymandering they had seen. Now, in an effort to fix that, they have ordered that the lines be redrawn in time for the 2020 election, at least in Michigan's 38 Senate districts. 31 of the 38 districts are actually impacted by this, but basically that means all of them will be redrawn in some capacity. And the legislature basically has not a lot of time to get that done. And of course, whatever plans they do pass will have to be signed by Governor Whitmer, And, of course, the judges are going to look at it again as well to see if they think the lines are fairly drawn this time around. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about what hurdles are out there before this actually happens is Susan Demas. She's the editor at MichiganAdvance.com. Michigan Advance, of course, covering all things Lansing and uh, government-related for us. Susan, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure. Uh, This was, of course, uh, this suit was brought after the redistricting, after the last census in 2011. Uh, Basically, what the judges found is that the last several elections have been unfair in Michigan, correct? Correct. And the it was a three judge panel. One judge was appointed by a Republican president, two by Democrats. So the decision itself was unanimous. And what exactly were they suggesting? I mean, they were they they're looking at this as a violation of people's voting rights, suggesting that they never really had a real option in some of the districts that they were living in. Yeah, I, they found that the maps that were drawn by the Republican majority in the legislature um, and signed by former Republican Governor Rick Snyder violated people's First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. So they violated the Constitution and. Instead of just letting this stand, they called for special elections for the state Senate in several districts in 2020 
And of course, you know, those elections would be two years early. So um, I think that was probably the clearest way that they wanted to demonstrate that this was a really big problem. Well, and and I think the words historical proportions actually matter when it comes to this three-judge ruling here. Uh, Again, a unanimous vote by these three. And they said, again, this was a historically bad gerrymander in Michigan. Uh, and, and I think that sort of gives rise to, to this notion as to whether or not, you know, do the, you know, to the victors belong the spoils. This went well beyond that, it seems. Right. And, you know, basically, if you looked at the arguments that Republicans were making in court, it kind of rested on, well, everybody does it. It's not that bad. And if it were political, it's no big deal. And clearly the judges were not persuaded at all. No, exactly. Now, you know, the interesting thing about this is, is that the last four elections, uh, you know, were that were <laughs> done under this cycle, you know, can't be undone at this point in time. However, there is the possibility that some state senators who were voted into four year terms are going to have to run for reelection uh, in these newly created districts, potentially. I mean, there's some stuff that we'll get to that that may get to that. But talk a bit about that. Is that an argument that's being made that somehow the rights of these duly elected people are going to be impacted by this? Yeah, you already had three senators who could be impacted, three Republican senators, file um, separately from some of the other Republican party, uh, interested parties, um, because making that argument that they're being unfairly impacted, um, I would expect that this argument will be um, probably fleshed out a little bit more. Uh, I know at least one Democratic senator who would be impacted, Jeremy Moss, um, has already said, hey, uh, I would have liked to have been in office potentially eight years. I'm okay with it being six because these maps are terrible. Well, you know, it depends on which party is uh, destined to gain and which is destined to lose. And and I don't want to suggest that the Republicans are guaranteed to lose seats here. But when you look at the makeup of the voting population in Michigan, uh, you know, it's a roughly 50-50 split in terms of, uh, you know, Republicans versus Democrats in terms of those who actually voted. Yet, of course, the seats were way out of whack, especially in the state Senate. Is that why only the Senate is being impacted by this? Or uh, and, and tell me a little bit about how that's going to work, because we're redrawing the lines in 2022 anyway. Right. So, you know, the state house and uh, the U.S. house are both up in 2020 anyway. Um, but the state Senate wouldn't be up until 2022 under new maps. Um As far as a political argument goes, I'm not sure this is going to be a slam dunk for Democrats. I mean, yes, we are a roughly 50-50 state. Um, Even when Republicans did win um, a um, more of the overall aggregate vote for the state Senate in 2014, um, they managed to get a 27-member supermajority you know, out of just, you know, winning about 50% of the vote, 51. um, That's a pretty good return on investment. Nonetheless, in in 2020, you're going to have so much on the ballot, starting, of course, with the presidency, and that's going to suck up all the oxygen and most of the money. Then you've got a U.S. Senate seat and a vulnerable Democratic incumbent in Gary Peters. Then you have two vulnerable um, incumbents for the Democrats at the congressional level, Alyssa Slotkin and Haley Stevens, who need to defend their seats. 
Um, and then by the time you get down to the state Senate, how much money and attention will there be? So, you know, whereas Republicans certainly don't want the outcome of these special elections, I'm not convinced that they'll necessarily do terribly because um, I think a lot of the Democratic attention is is going to be at a much higher level. Yeah. At the same time, though, I mean, it does have the impact to significantly change the, the margins in the state Senate. Even if the Democrats pick up a few seats, maybe don't take over the majority, they'll have a lot more negotiating power, will they not? They if would, indeed- but I, I could see a scenario where they lose seats. Yeah, that, that's entirely possible. <laughs> and again, it, it all depends on what the maps look like. Uh, right. and, and let's talk about that process, because, again, they need to get started now because they can't count on the Supreme Court ruling in their favor on these other two cases that they're already looking at, which potentially could make Michigan's case moot. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of time before the 2020 election to get through this process, which is not an easy thing to do, is it? Um. Well, it depends. Um, You know, you've seen Republicans in some other states have taken a more lackadaisical approach to redrawing the lines, hoping that the U.S. Supreme Court will save them um, or that, you know, in the case in North Carolina in 2018, um, it just got to the point where the parties involved decided that it it would be too difficult. There was not enough time. So I, I could see a scenario where either the Republicans basically wait it out or shift the lines a little bit, call it good and, and you know, see what what they get out of the courts. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to be burning the midnight oil trying to come up with a new map. Well, at the same time, though, yeah, they, they may not be working at it, but they are complaining a lot about the possibility <laughs> of what they call chaos. You know, this is going to be chaos. Well, it's not exactly chaos. We do this every 10 years. The lines get redrawn. This isn't a new thing. Uh, what do you think about some of the complaints that they're the complaints that we're hearing from the Republicans about what this will do to the electoral process? You know, I, I I covered the 2011 redistricting process in depth. I actually wrote a 25-page paper on it for the Center for Michigan. So, um, you know, they didn't really take all that much time with it. The computer software is pretty sophisticated at this point, does most of the work. So, um, you know, I don't think this has to be a very laborious process if they don't want it to be. Um, and as far as electoral chaos goes, I mean, you know, I, I I kind of am wondering exactly what that means. I mean, voters have more than a year to get used to the idea of a state Senate election. Um, you know, we've been told nobody cares about gerrymandering, and yet voters overwhelmingly voted for an independent redistricting commission with Proposal 2 last year. So clearly people do care a lot more than, you know, we were told. So... Um, to me, it's, you know, the, the argument the Republicans and the, their, their friends at the Detroit News editorial board were making about chaos is just another word for this isn't fair to us. <laughs> yeah, well, they weren't worried about the fairness uh, in, the, in the preceding elections uh, as a result of these maps. I, a lot of people are asking me this question. They say, and and I'm not exactly sure of the answer, but again, why just the state Senate um, as opposed to redrawing maybe the congressional lines, which if you look at the congressional lines here in Michigan, many of these districts, especially here in Southeast Michigan, look pretty darn goofy. Yeah, and you know, as somebody who's not a constitutional law expert, you know, I do wonder if the Supreme Court does 
take this up if if that may be part of the ultimate remedy. Um, you know, I, that I can't tell you for sure. But, um, you know, and, and certainly some of the state house districts are, are extremely goofy as well, especially if you look at the um, majority Detroit districts. Those always have very interesting shapes. Um, so, but the state Senate in particular, I think because of the fact that, you know, um, we would not have an election until 2022 and there would be no um, way for voters to get any justice. I, I think that made it compelling. Plus, if you look at the margins in the Senate that were so overwhelming for Republicans, even though um, it was roughly a 50-50 split throughout the decade, um, you know, when they ended up with a 26 or 27 seat supermajority, which means, you know, as far as the process goes, they can pretty well do whatever they want. Um, I think that's what made it compelling to the courts. Well, you know, I, I think what I'm going to be watching pretty carefully is how this process works. Uh, you know, again, we've got a ruling coming in June from the U.S. Supreme Court on those cases uh, involving those other states uh, that may impact what happens here in Michigan. But if indeed they have to redraw these lines and Republicans control the legislature, they will be in charge of the process. But they're going to have to create some maps, one that, uh, you know, pass muster with the governor. Uh, And two, with the courts themselves, the courts made it pretty darn clear that if we can't figure this out, they're going to do it themselves. Uh, It seems as if they were trying to apply a little bit of pressure on the Republicans to do this in a way that's a tad more transparent and fair. Yeah. Um, If if the Republicans aren't saved by the Supreme Court, um, I'm not sure that they can count on getting a great deal from the three judge panel, um, because if, you know, in their words, it was gerrymandered to a historical proportion. So I, I would expect that Republicans would probably not like their lines very much. Well, and I want to sort of get back to the ruling itself for just a second. I mean, as we were watching this case unfold, and I believe you and I talked about this a, a while ago, you know, the emails that uh, were uncovered as part of this trial really painted a damning picture of, of the intentions of the people that were involved in this process, you know, allowing legislators to have input on whether or not the districts were going to work for them, uh, talking about cramming, quote unquote, dem garbage into a few districts in southeast Michigan. Did any indication that that is something that uh, swayed the justices on this one? Yeah, I believe so. I think um, there were there were reams of evidence. I mean, the trial itself was relatively short, but Um, There was no shortage of evidence to go through. And, you know, when when you use words like historical proportions, um, I I think um, you can tell that the way that the Republicans went about this, the contempt that they had for not just Democrats, but for voters, um, I, I think made a real impression with the judges. Well, Susan, I sort of want to end on this point because the column that you uh, wrote about this just a a couple of days ago, in fact, I think I saw it yesterday uh, at michiganadvance.com, by the way, everybody, uh, go check it out. It's an interesting read, but it's basically saying that this is a part of a, a national power grab on the part of Republicans. And you look at election strategy and, and the goals that the two parties seem to have, uh, the Republicans have been focused on things that control the process. One getting a chance to redraw the lines and two, getting a chance to appoint judges. That seems to be their sole focus uh, because it pays dividends for them down the road. And when you take a look at what's happening around the country, uh, 
it certainly seems as if that is the ultimate goal. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know it's very fashionable to say, well, you know, both sides do it. And, you know, sure, both parties like power. But, um, you know, if you, you look at the strategy for Republicans, not just in Michigan, but across the country, you know, you've seen these lame duck power grabs trying to um, take back the power of Democratic governors in Michigan, in North Carolina, in Wisconsin. Um, you know, you've seen what Republicans have threatened to do with the budgets for the new Democratic Secretary of State and the Attorney General just because they don't like their politics. Um, and, and going to your point about judges, ultimately, there may be a confluence here because, um, you know, President Trump has gotten to appoint two extremely conservative justices to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, one of whom um, was President Barack Obama's pick, and it was denied to him by a Republican Senate. Um, it would be a very different court right now um, were President Obama, um, you know, given the right, like every other president has been, to name a Supreme Court pick uh, during his tenure. So, you know, it, how this case that we've been talking about turns out may end up uh, resting on that decision itself. It, it, it all goes back to Merrick Garland, huh? <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not shocking here uh, in any way, shape, or form. Well, we'll be watching very closely. We certainly appreciate the the ongoing coverage of things that are happening up in Lansing. This stuff does matter. Uh, and again, it'll be interesting to see how Governor Whitmer reacts to all of this when indeed she is presented with whatever solution they come up with. Um, we shall wait to see if that happens. But Again, if the courts rule uh, against the Republicans, they're not going to have a lot of time to get this done. So we'll be watching it carefully. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. One-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Hey, this is The Craig Show on a Tuesday. Thanks for being here. I do appreciate it. Don't forget, you can shoot me an email. It's thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Snapchat, on Instagram, just about anywhere else you can think of, LinkedIn as well. So reach out to me any way that you want to. Give me some ideas for some things you'd like me to tackle. If you've got an organization that you think needs highlighting, let me know, and I'll see what I can do about that. All right. Uh, I love politics. I've been talking politics for 20 plus years. It's something that I've covered for a long time. My first reporting gig was covering Detroit City Council, and then I went immediately from there to the state capitol and did that gig for a few years. Enjoyed the heck out of it. And I'm not suggesting that going back to those days was some sort of halcyon day of clean politics, because it wasn't. There have been scummy people in politics for as long as I can remember. But few of them, few of them reach the levels of scumminess that a guy named Jacob Wall does. Now, if you follow him, Jacob Wall, he's, well, he used to be on Twitter. He's been banned from Twitter because he signed up for a bunch of fake accounts uh, that were there to support President Trump. And you may also recall he alleged uh, last year to have had dirt on Robert Mueller, suggesting that Robert Mueller had sexually assaulted people and was going to have a press conference with the victims of Robert Mueller's alleged sexual advances. And of course, when the press conference started, none of the people actually showed up. And it was proven to be a hoax. 
Now, this is not the first time this guy has embarked in this type of behavior. He is a dirty trickster par excellence, although he is incompetent, which means that most of his stuff gets uncovered. Now, here's the latest, and this is the latest, and I'm not even going to name the kid involved in this because I think he was duped, and he has said as much on his Facebook page, but he's a student at Ferris State University. Now, apparently, Jacob Wall and his buddy are worried that Pete Buttigieg presents a real threat to President Trump in this next election cycle because he's getting a lot of traction. He's come out of nowhere, and a number of people are suggesting that they like his message. Now, Pete Buttigieg, of course, is gay. He's married. And the Jacob Wall idea here was to have somebody that would come out and accuse him of sexual assault. And he's been trying to apparently recruit people, and there are recordings suggesting as much, trying to recruit people to come out and say that Pete Buttigieg had assaulted them. So he gets somebody to respond saying, well, look, I'm looking to have somebody help the Republican cause. We're worried about Pete Buttigieg, and I want to talk to a gay Republican and see if we can't, you know, talk about that perspective and, and why, you know, being a gay Republican and why Pete Buttigieg doesn't have sort of a corner on the market on that, and the Democrats don't either. But that's not what they intended. So they fly this kid out to Baltimore, and they tell them about their scheme, and what they're trying to do is find somebody who will basically make an allegation against Pete Buttigieg and suggest that Pete Buttigieg had assaulted them when they were passed out or too drunk to resist. The kid says, nope, I don't think I want to do that. I don't know. And so they said, well, sleep on it. Sleep on it. We'll talk about it in the morning, and we can have a press conference the next couple of days. Hope you brought a suit. That's exactly what they said. So what happened is the kid sleeps on it. When he wakes up in the morning, there is a Twitter account that has been opened up in his name that is not his, and another account on on a platform called Medium, in which they put the story out there that this kid alleges that Pete Buttigieg had assaulted him. And it wasn't true. It never happened. It was alleged to have happened when Pete Buttigieg was in Washington while this kid was allegedly visiting Washington, D.C. But as the kid posted on Facebook yesterday, I've never been to Washington, D.C. I've never done this. This never happened. I was not sexually assaulted, and I would not falsely accuse somebody. So Jacob Wall made up the whole thing. It was a complete and total lie. Not surprising, given his track record, given the level of scumminess that this guy has. Now, credible allegations are one thing. If there are credible allegations and people come forward, they should be looked at. But making stuff up out of thin air in an effort to damage a political opponent is not acceptable. I don't care what the stakes are. We have sold our soul down the river as a nation if we are willing to allow people to do this. And I don't care who he supports. If he were to do this on behalf of Pete Buttigieg and suggest something that was a lie, I would be on his case just as badly. The fact that he is such a sycophant for Donald Trump, well, you know, that says a lot about Jacob Wall, in my opinion. But the fact is the Trump administration and the Republican Party need to come down and say that this type of tactic is unacceptable. We distance ourselves from this guy. He has nothing to do with us, and if he ever says anything, just know we don't have anything to do with it. That's what they need to do. Divorce themselves from this guy once and forever. Make this guy the outcast he deserves to be. And as we're having this debate about who has the right to vote and who has the right to participate in the political system, do people who are in jail, for instance, have the right to vote, or do people who are ex-felons have the right to vote? Well, you know, I'm kind of thinking that maybe, just maybe, we should start thinking about penalties for people that actually get involved in the political process in this way and try to manipulate the political process in illegal ways and lying. 
Maybe those are the people that should lose their right to vote. You want to be this big of a scumbag? You pay the price later on. Because that's what's going to hurt them, not being able to be involved in the process that they allegedly love, but are so willing to corrupt. Jacob Wall, I know you're not going to hear this, and maybe you don't even care, but you are a scumbag. Trying to recruit a college kid into your scheme, doing this against his wishes, doing this without his knowledge, in an attempt to smear somebody for whatever political gain you think you're going to get, or maybe you think this is going to help you climb the ladder of success on right-wing politics. You know, you and Steve Bannon can cozy up together, do all that fun stuff. And if you're willing to do that to further your career or, or increase your name, and maybe that's all it is. Maybe you just want your 15 minutes. But really? Really? I mean, who do you want to be known as? What do you want to be known for? And I don't like swearing on this program, but during the Nixon administration, especially when it came to the Watergate break-in and the dirty tricks that they were doing, the term that they used for what they were doing was called rat-fucking. Well, I can't think of a better example of that than this. And if that's the way you want to be known, if that's what you want to be known for, have a great life. In the meantime, most of us will know you just as this, just a plain asshole. I can't put it any simpler than that. There's no other word for this guy. Beat it. Get out of politics. Find something else to do. I don't know what you'd be good at, though. Thanks for listening to The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We'll be back tomorrow. Got a lot of stuff coming up. Don't forget, at the end of the week, we will do The Week That Was with Nancy Derringer and Alan Lengel from Deadline Detroit. That'll be fun. Looking forward to the Monday Follies next week as well. Lots of you have been checking that out online. I hope you like the Facebook Live post for that. Let me know. Uh, I certainly do appreciate the number of views we're getting for that. It's a, it's a big boost, and it's a great thing, so love to see it. Anyway, have a great evening. We'll talk tomorrow. See you then. My name is Seth Ressler. Hi, everyone. It's Becky Scarcello. I am new to the Detroit area. And I've been here my whole life. So we started a podcast together. It's called The D Brief. Detroit's arts and entertainment podcast. We cover concerts, comedy, plays, food, drink, all kinds of stuff. All the cool events around town, things to do, and the people that are doing them. Can we talk about some of the people we've had as guests on this podcast? Hey, this is Mark Kurlianchik, the restaurant critic for the Detroit Free Press. Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi, and I host Essential Music on 1019 WDET. Hi, this is Mark Ridley of Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Hey, this is Kate Williams, executive chef of Lady of the House. Hey, this is Meltdown from WRAF in Detroit. This is Josh Mallerman, author of Bird Box. This is Carmen Hart. Curator of film at the Detroit Institute of Arts. President and founder of Valentine Distilling Company. The general manager of innovation experiences for the Henry Ford. Arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press. The Michigan Science Center. Arts Beats and Detroit. If you like going out in the city of Detroit, you're going to like this podcast. The Debrief Podcast. We like to say Detroit's moving. Keep up. The Debrief. Your guide to Detroit's art and entertainment scene.